Just do a sound check first. Check one, check two, check one, check two. You need me to do it. Now, just in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Hi, everybody. It is August third, twenty twenty. It is five twelve p.m. when we are starting this, and I am going to be interviewing my grandpa, Mike McGowan. Um, first, we are going to talk about his early life from Oakland to West Sacramento, and he's going to elaborate on his early life. Well, okay, kiddo. Yeah, I see your heading is from Oakland to West Sacramento. So, the, my full name is Michael Hugh McGowan. H-U-G-H is the middle name. I was born December 22nd, 1947. Actually born in Santa Ana, California, in Southern California. Um, and then moved uh, around a bit, and we wound up in Oakland probably when I was, I don't know, maybe three or something like that, two or three. Lived there until I was five. I don't remember a whole lot about Oakland, but my dad settled there. He had a business. Uh, he started out his business as what they call a concessionaire. He sold hot dogs, peanuts, popcorn, soda pop, beer uh, to um, the crowds, the audience at various automobile racetracks that were proliferating throughout uh, California during the, the late 40s and early 50s, even and 60s. And these were normally a dirt track, a oval track, and it was either a um, race engine that was prepared for, for that purpose, or sometimes they called them jalopies or hardtops, and they were, they were homemade, uh, modified uh, race cars that raced around a quarter mile, sometimes a third of a mile, sometimes a mile track. So his niche was to sell um, this stuff, and he would work for whoever was promoting the track, and we'll come back to that in greater detail. But it caused him to move around a bit, and he moved from uh, Southern California to Oakland, when I, again, when I was about three, and he was working at the Oakland Speedway, which is no longer here. I think it was a half-mile track, and he sold those things I mentioned before. Um, my mom was a, a registered nurse, so here's the funny background on that point. My dad only had about an eighth-grade education, grew up in the South, and he was a, a self-made man. He didn't have any real education to speak of. My mom, on the other hand, had gone and graduated from um, Cal Berkeley, and then got a, her teaching credentials, or excuse me, her nursing credentials at uh, Stanford. So she was a, a much better educated person. That was an odd couple, to, be, to say the least, but they seemed to do okay, and they, they weathered a long-term long marriage and raised six children. Um, so we moved from Oakland to West Sacramento, when I was about five, because there were a couple of racetracks up in this area, one of which was Capital Speedway here in West Sacramento. And I remember we came up and we rented a house uh, from some folks uh, on Alameda Street, 310 Alameda. And I lived there, uh, we lived there, it was myself, my two older sisters, Jane was the oldest, Mary was the second, I was the third, and then our fourth, uh, fourth child, Virginia, um, she was uh, an infant, and so she stayed, lived in, she slept in the bedroom with my mom and dad, and the, the other three, myself and two older sisters, we shared a bedroom at 310 Alameda. Yes, they were cramped quarters, and um, it was an interesting time, but as you, when you're little, you don't seem to focus on those kind of things. Um, it was a, 
sort of a paradise for a young kid because I could walk out my front door and hook up with some of the other kids on the street and we'd run around and play tag or hide and seek or baseball or, or just hang out um, all day long. Had a wonderful time. So that's, that's what got us to West Sac. And uh, we'll talk more about the racetrack in a minute. We're going to go there now. Okay. So anyway, I, when I came to, when we came here, I was had started first uh, first grade in Oakland, and uh, we we left that before the end of the year, of course, by mid year. So my mom kicked me out of school for the rest of that that year, and she started me over again in first grade in Westmore Oaks. And the beauty of that was I didn't know any difference, and the kids just blind luck, I guess. But the kids I I uh, was in school with and when I started here in West Sac, have, many of them have become longtime friends, and a couple of them are some of my dearest friends. And uh, one of them in particular I consider my brother, a guy named Brady Martinez, who I've known since. I tell people I've known him longer than anybody else I'm not related to. And uh, so then what happened was my dad was up here and he was being the concessionaire, um, working for somebody else, and they came to him and they said, um, Mac, that was his nickname, Mac, we're going to close this racetrack down because we're not making enough money. So sorry, but you're, you're going to be out of a job here. And he said, that's terrible because I, I just moved my family up here and I really, really like it and I'd like to stay here. So they said, well, if you want to, we have, we have a lease on this uh, uh, business, on the track, and so if you want to take the lease over, um, go right ahead, and you 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 can do your own promotion of races. So he knew about as much about promoting a race in those days as I did now about brain surgery. He didn't know much about it at all. He wanted to sell tickets for folks to come watch the races, so he could sell them hot dogs and peanuts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that got to be his business model. And uh, along the way. He uh, developed a real expertise in preparing the racetrack. It was a dirt track, and he would water it and grade it and roll it and pack it and do all kinds of things. So it would be absolutely perfect on Saturday night when the race drivers came out. And um, they, they really liked his track, and it was one of the more uh, um, popular and famous tracks on that kind of a circuit, the dirt track circuit. So I grew up then, really from an early age, um, working at the racetrack. First, it's on Saturday nights. I'd, I'd go out and sell peanuts in the stands. I'd have a, a wire basket around my neck. And, and probably when I was 10 years old, 11 years old, I was out there trying to sell peanuts. I will say I was probably the world's worst peanut vendor. Uh, my dad would get on my case because uh, if you sold a full load, uh, which is about 100 bags of peanuts, you got $3. And I think that whole year I may have made a dollar ninety-two per night, so I wasn't very good uh, vendor in the stands. Um, there's a lot to talk about the racetrack. Uh, it was an interesting. It was an interesting situation. I'll, I'll say this uh, over overview. When I was growing up, and, and as I got older, I got more uh, different jobs to do. For the most part, they were what, pardon my French, but they were what I'd call the shit jobs. My dad didn't give me any glory jobs at all. If, if it was the, the dirtiest, there's a, there's a TV show out that, about the dirtiest job. I've had them all, including cleaning out a septic tank every Monday. Um, he gave me the worst jobs. I think it was I think it was his intention number one to show me how hard hard work could be, 
but also to let me know that I wasn't any better to him than his crew, the, the, the other men, mostly men, that worked for him. And he treated them uh, with a tremendous amount of respect, and he wanted me to, to see that I wasn't, I wasn't the boss's kid who was going to get out of hard work. If there was hard work to be done, I was going to have to do it right along with everybody else. And um, so that, that, that was a, at the time I hated it, but later it, I realized it was one of the motivators for me to want to go to college. And I did learn that, you know, a, a man who can labor or a person can labor and do good work has value. And in his mind, in his eyes, if you were a good tradesman, if you worked hard and produced, um, that, was what, that was a good thing. He wanted to see that. He didn't, he didn't favor me as the, as the fair-haired boy, as a son at all. And um, again, when I was growing up, I didn't like that. But as I got older in life, I thought he taught me an awful lot. So um, it was an incredible experience. I mean, there's so many stories about the racetrack. Uh, it's where I grew up. I'll tell, I'll tell it though this way. Again, when I grew up, I had lots of tough jobs to do. And I didn't like it because when I was working, my buddies were doing something that was fun. Um, and uh, I, I quit him one time. At, when I was out of, call, out of high school and uh, said I'm not going to work for you anymore and I actually went to work for uh, uh, Bank of America as a, as a courier, as a delivery guy of data and um, then I went into service. I was going to get drafted. Um, I was not what you call a great student. For me, for instance, high school was, uh, was, was my theater, it was my stage. Um, I wasn't the I wasn't the best student, but I sure liked to go to school and uh, entertain the troops, so to speak. And I remember when I was about a junior in high school, I decided somebody talked to me and said you should go run for the student council. So I went down the office to pull my papers, and the nice lady there said, "Well, Michael, you can't do that because you have to have a C plus average to be able to do that." <laughs> and here's a junior in high school. I had a whatever it was. It wasn't a C plus. That's how much fun I had in school, and, I, and, and that didn't deter me from continuing to have fun and, uh, all the way through graduation. Um, but um, I came back from the service, we'll talk about the service part in a minute, but I came back from the service and I went to work up for, of all things, PG&E as a field clerk. And that was a guy that was on a, on a crew, I was in the little, the little trailer office that they had, and my job was to keep tack keep track of all the hours and make sure the guys got their hours logged and got paid. That was pretty much the world's worst field clerk at the time. But I, I had come home from service and uh, I was married uh, to Susie and needed a job. And, and your mom was coming along about then. And so I needed to, uh, I needed to make some money. And so I got this job. Um, I left that job after about a year because I was working with a guy and he kept talking about, he was a senior clerk, and he kept talking about um, how, much, um, how, how, how much he was looking to forward to his retirement. And after about six months of this, I asked him, or eight months of this, I said, well, Leo, um, and he's a good guy, he's a good guy to me, but I go, Leo, I mean, you keep talking about retirement, how much time do you have left before you can retire? He said something like, 21 years, 8 months, 9 days, and 4 hours. And I go, well, how old are you? Because I'm 38. So I was 21, so 21, anybody that's over 30 looks like they're 50. 
I'm 31, 38. And I had what you call an epiphany. And I said, I do not want to be sitting in this desk when I'm 38 years old, counting the days of my for my retirement. So I came home. I talked to my wife, talked to Susie. And I told her the story. And, and she said, um, well, what do you think? And I said, I think I should go back to school full time. She says, I think so too. So I had the GI Bill. I got some money to go to college, and and uh, uh, but I and Sue was working as a bank teller, and then I needed some more money. So I went back to my dad, and I said, I need I need to work. I need some hours to work, in addition to uh, going back to school, so I can help you know, uh, pay the bills. And he brought me back, and it was during that period that I came when I came back that I got to realize uh, what he was really all about. He was a tough guy. It's tough on me um, to the extent where, I'll jump ahead a little bit, when I went to boot camp, uh, these DIs were yelling and screaming at me, and after about 10 hours I'm watching them, I go, I think I've been cussed out by a tougher guy than you, so it wasn't that hard to take what they had to dish out because I'd gotten, I'd gotten it from the, you know, the world champion, my old man. So when I went back to work for him after the service, I, I certainly had been in the service in the Marine Corps, had been through Vietnam, and so I kind of came, I kind of came back with a different sort of approach to life. Got married, and had had your mom, um, and so it wasn't the same. It was different. I felt good about the work, and I liked it. I liked it a lot because I got to see what a man can do, my dad, when who wants to maintain as much independence over his life and control over his own life as he possibly can, to the point of maybe sometimes ignoring other opportunities that would require him to sell off part of his soul to make more money. He was fiercely independent, did not want to rely on anybody else's help, and um, you know he was he's what you call a man's man. Matter of fact, I'll tell you a quick story. We're talking about the racetrack. Uh, I was about 15 or 16, and there was an area they called the pits where the race race car drivers were. And they, you understand, these guys that were in racing in those days, were, they worked at the service stations or, or uh, well, auto mechanic places. or They did a lot of physical hard work. These were a tough bunch of guys. And um, so I was out in the pits one day, and race day, and um, they were having like a little impromptu race drivers meeting where they were yelling and screaming about something that my dad had done or, or hadn't done uh, or was wanting them to do and they were yelling and screaming and cussing and this one guy's in the back of a truck with a big wrench and he's going on and on about if he sees McGowan come down the pits he's just going to grab him and beat the holy crap out of him and no one's going to tell us what to do and blah 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 yeah 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 they were all riled up and I'm going oh my dad's going to get murdered if he comes down here right about then here he comes in a water truck he pulls up he sees them all standing there, and he gets out of his truck, calm as hell, walks around the corner, and he says, so boys, you about ready to go to racing or not? And every one of them goes, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, 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 Mr. McGowan, yes, Mac, including the guy with the wrench. He goes, yeah, we're ready to go, Mac, we're ready to go. Mr. McGowan, we're ready to go. He said, okay, boys, let's have a good night tonight. And that was it. I'd never seen anything, I've never seen anything like that. He had what you would call a presence, um, and very formidable. He walked in, and people took notice. And so I got to see that when I came back and appreciate it more. And also what, the, what it cost him to do that, 
in, uh, in, in personal terms, but he was a man who um, stood on his own hind legs, and he did it, you know, his way. He didn't do it some other, somebody else's way, he did it his way. Made very few uh, concessions in life to other people, other than his family. He was devoted to his family. So, racetrack, I mean, so that was the basics. I mean, growing up, it was a lot of, a lot of hard work, so it was dirty work. Um, I learned what it's like, you know, I was shoulder to shoulder with the troops out there doing the, the cleaning up the racetrack or building fences or whatever we were doing out there. And uh, they had to work every Saturday night. Some jobs I hated, some jobs I didn't work so bad. Um, so it was, it, was, it was what we did. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know, I don't know what else you want to hear about that piece. But um, before we go on, though, I will talk about growing up here. Is that one of your other headings coming up? Why don't you talk about um, Rudy, Dickie, Steve, and John, and okay. childhood friends? Well, sure, 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 sure. Well, let's go back then. So again, when we moved here, in the early 50s, I was about five years old. Um, I didn't know what was going on. My mom kept me out of school for the, for the balance of that year. And there was a group, of, there's a knot of young kids, all our age, all my age, kids across the street. Um, uh, Dick Leathers was one of the kids down the street. I didn't meet him until a bit later. Uh, but the blessing was is that when I started school as a first grader, Dick was in the class, Dick Leathers, Rudy was in the class, and John Askey was in the class. I'm trying to think who else was there. Um, not John. John Combs came along a lot later. And we went. We stayed in the same class with each other all the way through sixth grade. So for, from first through sixth grade, I had exactly the same kids. And you do, you do develop relationships, long-lasting relationships. And I tell people today that Rudy Martinez, who I consider a brother, um, I tell people I've known him longer than anybody else I'm not related to because we, we became friends just about instantly when I was there five years old and certainly by the time we started started uh, elementary school. I started in the first grade. I, and then, of course, guys like Rudy and Dick would say, oh, well, you're a newcomer. You, did, you, didn't, you didn't go to kindergarten with us. I said, that's right. I started in first grade. But that kind of comes under the heading of what it was like to grow up here in West Sacramento. And in addition to those friends, and again, like we all stayed together, um, it was a very closed, close-knit community. So there's about 50,000 people in West Sacramento today. There might have been 15,000 in those days, including the uh, Broderick and Bright area and, and old what we call Old West Sac. There was nothing where the Barge Canal is and the Deepwater Port. That wasn't there. And uh, the, end, the, end of the, sit, the end of this town was Stone Boulevard that runs right there. Um, you go down into Park Boulevard, you take a ride on Stone. That was the end of town. We lived in one of those houses. So growing up... Um, we lived at uh, 2013 Pennsylvania Court, and um, Rudy and Dick and those other kids, we would uh, take off on a Saturday, come to my house. In those days, you could ride your bike all over West Sac. You could go to anybody's lawn, just dump your, car, your, your bike, and you'd have to lock it up. Nobody locked a bike up. And you could leave it out there all night and come back and get on a bike in the morning and take off. Um, it was almost idyllic, and what I didn't appreciate at the time, was it, it was also a town where everybody was watching out for you. Um, you know, so you, we had a lot of eyes on us. You could, only, you could only make so much mischief before one of those people would call my mom or my dad. And normally they'd call my mom and say, hey, Phoebe, you know, Mike's down here doing something stupid. You just want to let you know. As an example, later, jumping ahead, 
I was going to school over there. It's a, uh, the the junior high school was over there by um, where the where the school administration offices are, with Washington Unified School District. I'm walking home from school, probably in the seventh grade, and I had a cigarette. I smoked a cigarette. I, and it's about a mile from there to my house. So I get home. My mom's sitting there, and she goes, what have you been doing? Oh, I'm just walking home from school. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Are you doing anything special? No, no, just walking home. Come here. Yeah, what do you want? Let me smell your breath. Oh, I, I know. All right. Let me smell your breath. She goes, you've been smoking, huh? And I go, yeah, I had a cigarette. So I got in trouble. And she told me later, and, and the good news, she told me not not botly, but like maybe, maybe six months or something like that. She said, you know, you can't get away with this place. This, you can't get away with anything in this town. Because she goes, before you got home, I'd gotten two calls from my Seroptimist buddies. There was a woman's club here in town. I'd gotten two calls saying, oh, we just saw Mike go down the street smoking a cigarette, Phoebe. Thought you might want to know. She got two of those kind of calls. So it's like, so the message to you as a young kid is, I better watch my P's and Q's in public because I really can't get away with anything. So, yeah. What else? I think that will wrap up this particular episode. Oh, okay. We are going to uh, take a break and we will continue another episode a little bit later, but um, this has been amazing. Thank you. Well, I hope you got what you want. Um, I want to tell you one thing about the racetrack. Those, uh, was, uh, we still on? Yep. It's hard for me to, to um, give you all of the examples of things that were um, impressive or, or linger in my mind. So this is during the late 50s and the 60s, and, and that, these were tumultuous times. And um, I remember my, my dad came from the South. As, again, he was an uneducated guy. And he, he had terrible comments about um, especially, especially African-American folks because he grew up surrounded by them. And I, I, I suspect that besides all the biases that one gets, from the deep south, he was also competing for work with those folks because he was a he was a laborer like they were um, to have any kind of work. But he never acted that way. He said it privately. He didn't speak out. He didn't act on it. He hired African Americans. He hired uh, Mexican guys and Latinos, um, Mexican Americans. Um, and once it came to going to work for him, he didn't care about all that other stuff. He just wanted to know if you were going to work hard and help him make money. And if you were, he really didn't care at all. And the best example of that was the man, the man who was running the concessions before I took it over, whose last name was, was Cisneros, as African-American gentleman. And he had a, another job, uh, I think probably in a cannery. I'm not sure what, what Max did. But he, was, he, but he ran the concessions for my dad. Uh, making sure that the people who were in the stands selling hot dogs and all that kind of stuff had what they needed. And um, there were these, one of the good jobs there was the uh, beer vendor. The beer vendors would go out and sell this beer. And they could make, they could make, this is in 1963. And they could probably make as much money on Saturday night selling beer as they could all week at their other job. 
That's how good it was. That's how lucrative it could be if we had a good hot night and a good lot of people at the racetrack and you could work hard. Well, he had a crew that would come, all white guys, and um, and they did their they did what they did, but he had a hard time if the uh, there was a baseball team in town, a Triple A AAA baseball team called the Solons, and they used to have a stadium right over there where um, Target is on Broadway. And if they were in town, these guys would desert him on Saturday. Well, we used to race on Saturday nights. So they would desert him and they'd go work over there because they could make a little bit more money. Or if when the county, when the state fair was open, they had the horse races, and so they would go work at the horse races. So it would sort of leave him high and dry. Every year when the, you know, he had to go through it all the time. So one, one time he got mad and he asked this guy Cisneros, he said, I'm looking for some guys that can sell this beer that I can depend on. These guys are not, you know, they're, they're, I'm second place. He goes, my, he says, Mac, I got a crew that can come work for you this Saturday night, but I got to tell you, they're all Mexican guys. And my dad says, I don't care if they can make me some green. That's all I care about is they're dependable. If they're not dependable, I don't want them. So we changed, quite frankly, almost all of our operation where it was 80% Latinos working in the stands and doing the, and the, the beer hustling, and they were good. And they were good guys. They made and they worked really hard. I never saw people work hard in my life. And so after the fair was over, these white guys came back, and here are these Mexican guys. They're Mexican Americans. And when I say that, I, I don't want to sound I don't want to sound uh, demeaning at all because I had a lot of respect. They're wonderful guys. And the white guy goes to my dad, and he's going. Well, we want our jobs back. You got to get rid of these guys. And my dad says, "You left your jobs. They got your jobs. You don't have a job here. You're out of here. Get out of here." So they went back, and they tried to tell the guy who was signing them up to do that night. He says, "We're here. We're going to jobs back." And and he'd already talked to my dad. My dad says, "No, we're not. They're, they're, they're gone." Uh, and I saw and I saw this. I was probably 14 years old. Frankie's age, mind you. And I was hanging out with all these guys. And this one guy, he goes, he takes a bottle out of the, uh, it's a tall, tall neck beer bottle. And he gets down his shoulder and he goes, he taps the bottle on the ground and he talks to this big, fat white guy. He says, hey, senor, I got your job. It's right here. Come and get it. Oh. And the guy blustered and said a lot of stuff and I'll get you and all that. And they left. Damn. Yeah, here I'm going. Oh, what am I watching here? I also learned. I also learned how to shoot dice when I was with those guys. So <laughs> they would they would bet some of their money and roll some dice. So anyway, that's the story. And I think we'll wrap it up here. Thank you very much, Grandpa. Let me know when you want some more. All right. <laughs>